life. Although we may believe totally false things about you this morning, Lord Jesus, your word can come as a double-edged sword and be powerful and change our hearts, change our minds. I pray that we will fix our eyes on Jesus and you will give us help this morning in all of our needs. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, has anyone ever heard of this guy called Roger Bannister? Have you? Right. Now, he isn't known for creating the bit of wood that goes down beside the staircase. But he is known, Roger Bannister, Bannister for um, breaking the four-minute mile record. So no one had ever run a mile in less than four minutes. Roger Bannister comes along, and he does it in 1954. What a legend. That, he's going to be a bit of a, a, a man that we come back to quite a lot uh, in this sermon. Roger Bannister. Um, so I, I've seen it this week. I didn't know about him until this week because I follow BBC Archive on Facebook. And every day they post like videos from that archive. Um, so this is from 1954, the day that he did it. And it's a whole clip of him running his under four-minute mile. He did it in three minutes, 59.4 seconds. So he didn't, you know, it's like, come on, mate, that's pretty tight. You know, you, you know, almost uh, lost out there. But he did it. And at the end of the race, you should see him like he's stumbling around. He's absolutely exhausted. But he reached the goal that he set out to achieve. He didn't just win the race. That wasn't even his goal. He, he won the race comfortably. But he got this under four-minute record by running a mile. It was incredible. Now, um... We'll come back to Roger, okay? Um, but last week, we looked at uh, an incredible chapter of the Bible. Lee preached on Hebrews chapter 11. The children of our church are absolutely genius at Hebrews chapter 11 now um, because we're going through it uh, in Anchor and Cornerstone. They are the heroes of the faith. We all need heroes to look up to and to want to emulate. And the living God knows this. And he has given us heroes in the Old Testament men and women that we are meant to look up to and be like, wow, how did they live like that? And the answer is they lived by faith in the Son of God who loved them and who died for them. That is how they did it, by faith. Incredible. Um, and I guess the, because this passage starts that, uh, with the word therefore, a classic move in Hebrews, it starts with therefore. This is the thing. What are you meant to take from looking at these incredible men and women from the Old Testament? Now, they are incredible, but they're also completely ordinary and sinful. But what are you meant to take from looking at them? And it's really two things. The first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, here we go. Since we're surrounded by these, these incredible witnesses who witness to Jesus, who witness that it is worth persevering and looking to him, what is the lesson we're meant to learn? The first thing is let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and persevere in this race that's marked out for us. And then the second thing is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now, I don't know if you know this, brothers and sisters in Gabalva, but all of us are runners. I know looking at you, you wouldn't think it. But the Bible tells us we are all runners in a race. You might not have known this, but when you joined with Jesus, when you were baptized and you said, I am following Jesus, no turning back. You began a race. You're running in a race. Your life as a Christian is a race that is marked out for you. Many have gone before us, have run the race that was marked out for them, and they've finished it. And 
We, though, are still in the running of this race. And running, if you've ever done it, I'll tell you something, it is painful. Running a race is painful. It is hard. It isn't a walk in the park. It is a run in a race, and it is tough, and it induces sweat, and it is hard going. And by God's grace, one day, actually, it was sung to us in uh, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, uh, the race will be complete. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. By God's grace, one day that will happen, but we right now are running in the race. Is running an easy thing? No, it's not. Every runner will tell you that. It's not easy. Is running a race worth it? Is the race of the Christian life that you're running in worth it? Now, I think this might be the question that we're a little bit wobbly on this morning. You might be here this morning, and this is where you wobble. Life for everyone's hard. But is running the race where you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus, you've got to you know, get rid of everything that so easily entangles and the sin uh, that is so close, is running that race worth it? And I hope this morning you see, yeah, it is worth it. It's worth that I keep, as the apostle says, persevering, keep going through the pain, in the pain, till I reach the end. Fixing my eyes on Jesus as I do it. It's worth it. The question is, how will you run the race well? So the first two things he says, isn't it, is get rid of everything that hinders you. Now, this is interesting because it's different to the sin that so easily entangles because he says, and the sin that so easily entangles. So there might be things this morning, church family, that are hindering you from looking at Jesus and following him with all of your soul, all of your strength, and you need to get rid of them. What are the things that hinder your running race in this Christian life? Now, there could be so many different things, right? You've got to think about this for you. What is it? Now, one thing, if you, I love the, the running illustration. It's an illustration the Holy Spirit has given us. It's a really cool illustration, this. Think about it. When you're running in a race, there's people on the sidelines, isn't there? And they could be saying things like, you're never going to finish this race. Now, do you ever have thoughts that say that? You should give up. You don't run like a Christian. You don't look like someone who is like Jesus. You look nothing like these saints in the Old Testament. You may as well turn around now and give up. Do you have those thoughts that go around your head? Running is too hard. You should just take a chill pill. Sit it out. Don't run this race. Run some other race. Actually, there's a fun run going on over there, and it's very popular. You should join in with that race. There are people on the sidelines, and it could be just lies of Satan in your head that you hear that are tempting. It could be your friends who you know, live a totally different life. They're running a totally different race. And they seem to be loving their race. And you think, my race is so hard and I don't know if it's worth carrying on. Now, one interesting tactic that Roger Bannister took up. He knew, right, I cannot beat the four-minute record. I can't break it. I can't run a mile in under four minutes. This is really interesting if I run by myself. He had two of his teammates, and they planned it all out. There would be one guy who would set the pace, and he would run in front. And he would run in front until the last lap of the track. And Roger Bannister would run behind him all the way. I don't know if there's a bit of slipstream going on, because it's not Formula One. But, you know, he's behind him. This guy's keeping the pace. He's got his eyes fixed on him. And then there's a guy 
behind him as well. So he is surrounded. He has his bros with him. And then at the end, in the interview, when he breaks the record, he says, I owe this victory to those two guys. I'll tell you something that's going to hinder you, church family, individualism. If you want to run this Christian life and you think it's one of those races where you're in an individual lane, you're completely mistaken. This is more like that marathon run where they might start in an individual lane. You come in by yourself, but then you're straight away with a bunch of people. That is the Christian life. We are here for each other. The song that we sing, we are pilgrims on a journey and companions on the road. We're here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. That is what church is about. Individualism will hinder you. The scriptures say that God puts the lonely in families. Local churches all over the world. The living God is us here at Gabalva. We are here for one another in this race. Where I'm feeling weary, you'll help me. When you're feeling weary, we help each other. That's what we're there for. We lean on one another and we together fix our eyes on Jesus. Okay, so the next thing it says about sin that so easily entangles. Now, I, I imagine this is a bit like running with your shoelaces undone or something, you know? Now, you know, if your shoelaces are undone and you're running, you might keep it up for a little while, but before long, you're going to have a great big fall. Now, there might be sin in your life that you think, it doesn't matter. I can't see how keeping this bit of sin is going to really hinder my run with Jesus. Everyone's got their eyes fixed on Jesus around me. They can't see that my laces are undone. I know they're undone, but I quite like having them undone. I'm going to keep plowing on. But the truth is, if that's you, if there is sin in your life that you know is wrong, Lee does the confession and comfort, or I do, and you feel it, you feel it every week, God seems to be convicting me of the same thing, and I'm not getting rid of it in my life. I'm not confessing it to my brothers and sisters. I'm not being accountable. I'm not saying, look, you need to help me out because there's this sin and I need to deal with it. And you just let it stay. One day you're going to have a great big fall and you're going to hurt yourself. You might take some other people out with you. You know, they, they might trip over you as you, you fall. If there is sin in your life, look, Jesus came only for sinners. Don't fear him. Don't fear the light. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If there's sin in your life, it can be rooted out. It can be dealt with. Here is the safe place for that to happen in church life. We help one another in this regard. You can call someone up later today and say, I need to confess my sin. Help keep me accountable that I don't keep going this way. And they'll help you tie your shoelaces up. And you can keep running together. They'll say, come on, let's go. The sin that so easily entangles. It needs to be got rid of. We watched a video a couple of weeks ago in prayer meeting of Paul Perkin, uh, who was a member of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Swansea. Uh, and a few years ago, he died of cancer. But he knew he was going to die, and the elders of the church did a video with him. And one thing he said was, you realize as you come to die, what a waste of time sin is. It's a waste. It doesn't add anything. It just takes things away. If you love your sin, know this, it is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. Okay. So what do we, and we're told, aren't we then, the second thing is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, what do we see 
when we look at Jesus. And it goes on to tell us, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. That is what you see when you look at him. You have to look at Jesus, and what you see is a man who was crucified, who was resurrected and ascended, and he's at the right hand of God, and all things are under his feet. We've seen that already in Hebrews. But you've got to ask, why did he go through with it? Hebrews 2 is about Jesus taking on flesh, coming and doing this. Why did you go through with it, Jesus? Now, this is what's, looking at Jesus is what's going to help you, it says at the end of verse 3, not grow weary and lose heart. So what is it about this that's going to help you not grow weary in this race and lose heart? What is it about looking at Jesus that's going to make you think it's worth carrying on? And it's got to do with this, the joy that was set before him that made him endure the cross, endure the flogging of men, endure the such opposition from sinful men that he died even death on the cross. What was the joy set before Jesus? Well, Hebrews 2 actually tells us, we've actually already covered it. He says this, I think it's in verse 12, that um, I will sing the praises of you among my brothers in the congregation. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus said, and then he quotes from Psalm 22. And we know Jesus said this. We know that Psalm 22 was Jesus' song on the cross. He may have only been able to get the first line out, but that's the song he was singing in his heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that psalm goes on. It goes on to say that he is not ashamed to call sinners who trust in him brothers. And the thing that excited Jesus, the, his goal, the thing that drove him to take on flesh, to be tempted in every way, though without sin, to endure such opposition from sinful men, was the thought that he could be with all his family in the new creation. And who's that family? Well, it's his father in heaven. But then he's got a load of brothers. We, church family, are his brothers. The thing that meant that Jesus went right through with the cross. He set his face like flint. He didn't give up for one second. He didn't sin once. In every temptation, he said no. He did it for the joy of having you with him in eternity. He did it for you. He did it for me. He didn't turn back even for a moment. Now you've got to ask, why on earth would that excite him? Me. It's me. He knows how useless I am. He became sin on the cross, so he knows the depths of how rubbish I am more than I do. And yet that is why he's also our bridegroom. Because this is about his passionate, unrelenting love for his bride, the church. It's a love, you know, love like that, it's almost, yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it? He has such utter love that in his passionate love, you see his passion on the cross the passion of our Savior, that he loved us even when we were sinners. That is how much Jesus loves you. And the joy set before him was being with you in eternity, being with me, with his Father. It's the family reunion that he's looking forward to. That's what made Jesus go through with it. That's what made him persevere. Now, one really important thing is this. You need to know this. It was not a joy for Jesus to die on the cross. That wasn't the joy. 
It was not a joy for him in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Matt mentioned, to sweat drops of blood in anxiety as he looks ahead to what is coming. It wasn't the pain that he wasn't looking forward to. It was the utter separation from his Father in heaven. It was becoming sin. It was enduring the wrath of God on your behalf and on my behalf. It was not a joy for him to do that. But he didn't do it for that. He did it for what was going to come next. He did it for when we're all with him in the new creation. That's what drove him. You see, that should convince you this one he stands out from a thousand other men, as songs of, Song of Songs says. There is no one like Jesus who loves me like that. There is no one like Jesus who loves us at Gabalva Baptist Church like that. If you're a non-Christian, there's no one who loves you like Jesus Christ. You're looking for a relationship, you're not going to get it. If you get anything decent and good, it is just but a poor reflection of his true, unadulterated, unrelenting love for you. That is the truth. Now, the apostle knows why we want to give up. Sure, it might be partly that we don't understand it's a race. Races are painful. We might not be fixing our eyes on Jesus, which is the thing that should stop us growing weary. But the other thing is, he knows that running hurts so, so much. He knows that life as a Christian is hard. And you might still be saying, but why is it so hard? Why is there so much hardship in my life? Why is that the case? The struggle and the hardship of the race. And this is the main reason why people give up being a Christian. Because it is too hard. It is far too hard. Why, oh why, Jesus, are you making me run in a race? Why? Getting rid of my sin is too hard. Getting rid of the things that hinder me are too hard. If I'm honest, I like them. I like them being there. I don't want to have to get rid of them. Now, we have a lot of testimonies up the front. Often on a Sunday night, people give a more general sort of testimony of how they came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and then the difference he made in their life. Now, when they get to that bit, a line that you often hear is this. When I became a Christian, life didn't necessarily get any easier. They'll say something to that effect. And that's totally true. But I think if we're all very honest, and we feel we can't say this, but let's just be honest, when we become a Christian, if we really want to follow Jesus the way that he says, life gets a whole lot harder. That's the truth. Uh, we uh, partnered with a church in 20 Schemes in Scotland. Sol Fenn from 20 Schemes has written a brilliant song, and this is the lyric in it. Why did life get harder the moment I believed? And it's a bit of a mantra for them in 20 Schemes, this. Because this is helpful for those addicts. You know, that they know, look, you come and be a Christian and follow Jesus, brilliant. You need to know, he's not going to lift you out of your hardship. It is going to be painful, but it is worth it. Life will get harder, but ultimately it is worth doing it. It is ultimately worth it. And it's harder because once upon a time... I was ignorant of my sin. I was ignorant of the living God. I was ignorant of the depth of my sin and darkness. You know what? I could do whatever I thought was best. I could justify my own actions. I could make excuses for everything. But now I'm a Christian and I'm following Jesus. He's showing me more and more that I'm worse than I ever realized. That my sin offends God more than I ever realized. 
that living life, fixing my eyes on Jesus, is the most unnatural thing in, my, in the world. My whole being is like, don't do it. It's too hard. Life gets harder. I thought it was hard in Egypt. Now I'm in the wilderness. That's what life is like as a Christian. So what is the answer to that question? Why did life get harder the moment that I believed? It's interesting what the apostle does. He says, you have forgotten the encouragement that treats you as sons. He says, you've forgotten about Proverbs chapter 3 and Proverbs chapter 4. Why have you forgotten about them? If you're asking that question, why is life so hard? You look at Proverbs chapter 3 and Proverbs chapter 4 for just one thing. That's one place. Because God uses hardship to treat you as his son. He uses hardship. You are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that word is very, very, very closely linked to discipline. The Christian life is a discipline. And the Christian life involves being disciplined from our heavenly father. Now, this is, I was thinking about this. What, what I would expect God to be like. Okay, Now, when I look at Jesus, I see something totally different. But what I'd expect God to be like is he'd say, follow me and I will pluck you out of all your hardship with immediate effect. Now, there's a lot of people in false churches that will say that and it's wrong. It's totally wrong. This passage is like, you can't get that from this passage. That isn't what the living God says. What is it that Jesus says? He says this, you want to follow me? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and let's go. Follow me. That is the reality of the Christian life. That is Christian discipleship. It is a discipline. And the discipline is this. Deny yourself. There is nothing in you that can do any changing. There's no, you can't self-help. That's not a thing. It's only Jesus' help now. No self-help. You can't help yourself. You are a sinner and there's nothing you can do. But everything you need, you receive by grace in Jesus Christ, who loved you and he gave himself for you. You go to him for everything. And you pick up your cross. That means expect hardship. Expect discipline. Expect that this life is going to be hard because you're a son of God. Now, every father disciplines his son. Every time you go through a hardship, you're meant to think, ah, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm, I'm clearly a son of yours because this week has been hard. Now, how different is that to what you and I think? We think, does God love me? But when you think about it in a father-son or parent-child relationship, it makes sense. Adults, cast your mind back to being children. Children, you know this. When your parents discipline you, however that is, times are changing, it's probably just with words. At the time, are you loving it? No. It is absolutely hard, and you think, mom and dad must hate me. But they don't. And they probably well remind you, I'm doing this. I'm telling you this because I love you. And through the tears, you're meant to believe that they are saying the truth. Now, what he says here is great. He says, at the time, it's not pleasant. But later, later on is when you look back and you say, I thank God for my parents because they told me off when I was being an idiot. I know we've got a testimony of Rodri uh, we had on video doing something like that. Uh, his parents made him go to church and he wanted to play rugby. And at the time, he thought, you hate me. But later on, he was able to say, I thank God my mum and dad made me go to church because they loved me. 
No discipline's pleasant at the time. Now, this is the thing. With the non-Christian life, it's all about being pleasant at the time. But this is the thing. If you're a non-Christian, enjoy your life right now. But later, it produces a fruit of death and destruction and separation from God. The Christian life is right now, it is hard. It is discipline. It is carrying a cross. It is Jesus allowing you to go through suffering and hardship. But later, it produces fruits. What is it? Later on, it produces a harvest. What a great word. There is a reaping day, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. A harvest of righteousness and peace. On that day where Jesus returns and you will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, it is a harvest of righteousness that's not your own, clothed in his righteousness, and peace that Jesus has won. Peace with God. Peace that you will know inside. You'll be 100% convinced of on that day. Jesus just flips it around. He says the whole world lives for pleasure now, but it will be pain later. Follow me and we'll flip that. So that forever it will be everlasting pleasure and peace and righteousness. Now I've got some incredible quotes from um, the early church if I can find them. Because they just think so differently to us on this. Basil the Great, who later turned into a puppet fox, said this. Are you ill? Be of good cheer because the Lord disciplines those he loves. How mental is that? Like, thank you, Jesus, that I'm feeling rough as heck this morning. I'm clearly your son. That's how you're meant to think. Here's one more from Chrysostom. Sufferings from which you suppose you've been deserted, the apostle says, you may in fact be confident that you have not been deserted. You're meant to totally flip your thinking, brother and sister. If you think in your trials that you're going through, in the pain that you're going through, when you think God must hate me, correct your thinking and say, no, he must love me. Now, I know that doesn't come naturally. I know that's against every fiber of our logic and our reasoning. But it's because you're a little child who sometimes has tantrums and you need to be told off. And one way that God uses that is obviously through preaching. He'll rebuke you. But then he'll just use hardness in life, difficult situations, heartache, physical suffering, circumstance trials, unemployment, not knowing where you're going to get your money from next week. He uses those things to treat you as a son or a daughter. Okay. So brothers and sisters, you may well be seriously thinking of giving up and not persevering with Jesus. That really might be where you're at this morning. Children, you might be thinking, this might be for my parents, but I don't know if it's for me. Jesus is worth it. He's worth the pain. He's worth, you know, going through this hardness of life and battling with the, well, why doesn't he just kill me? Why don't I just go to heaven? It's worth going through that because he's the one who loves you so much more than anything else. Remember that the hardship that you go through and that pain that you feel, it's actually your Father in heaven loving you. That's what it is. Therefore, don't lose heart, as it says in verse 3, but take heart. You're meant to take heart. We have the Spirit among us, it says at the end here, to strengthen our feebleness. Brilliant what Charlotte said, uh, taking encouragement from Lee's video. You come to church feeble and weak. And what he wants to do through everything that happens, the conversations you have, the things at the front, is give you strength 
So you can say, yet not I, but through Christ in me, that he gives you grace, he gives you peace, he gives you help in your time of need. We have his church here at Gabelva to help you. And we together are fixing our eyes on Jesus as we run together as pilgrims. And one day the race will be over and all the pain will be turned into peace and righteousness forever and ever. Shall I pray? Father in heaven, I thank you that Jesus Christ is worthy. He is worthy because he died and with his blood he bought sinners for God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're alive and you're sat down at the right hand of God. Thank you that saints before us, martyrs before us have gone and they have run this race and they have won. They have got to the end. Lord Jesus, we know by your grace we will reach the end. Help us in Gabalva, help us who are weary and losing heart to fix our eyes on Jesus and no help in Jesus' name. Amen.